0: Welcome Summit family, my name is Curtis. Um, I've had the privilege of serving as one of your pastors now for gosh, I guess six or seven years. For those of you that don't know me, a few things about me when I preach, Um, I talk pretty fast, can't help it. Uh, I, I'm a pretty excitable guy. When I get real, real excited, I go up on my toes. So y'all recognize that. Uh, if you see me trying to keep my voice down, my toes go up. I am withholding something serious. And so um, that's just how I roll because I love Jesus. The older I get, the more I fall in love with Jesus. Um, and so that, that, that's who I want to talk about today. Is that all right with y'all? All right, all right, amen. There's my intro, that's it. Grab your Bibles, Mark chapter two, not kidding. <laughs> so um, we're gonna take a little break from our Roman study this year. We're gonna be in the gospel of Mark chapter two today. As you're turning there, um, I, I said, as I get older, I recently had a birthday at the end of January. And then that kind of coupled with with Christmas recently. Um, just turning older, I, I got to, to, to thinking recently about how getting older, um, get, getting gifts is a whole lot less fun the older you get, Right. <laughs> Like not because the gifts get bad, just because the the excitability level goes way down because the the practicality of the gifts goes way up, right? Like that's just what happens. The older you get, the more practical gifts you get. Like my daughter, my, my oldest daughter is four. She, she turns five in November. If she asked me for her fifth birthday, if she says, daddy, I want like a miniature pony or something like that's incredibly impractical. I would probably try to figure out if I can make that happen. You know, just kid, doesn't matter. She doesn't need, need anything else. She I, I remember the first time feeling like, am I getting old? This is weird, which I wasn't, but I remember when I was in middle school, I had a birthday and all I wanted was, was a paintball gun, Tipman 98. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? Tippman 98 paintball gun. That's all I wanted. And I didn't get the paintball gun. I'm sure my parents got me something I loved. But aside from that, I remember opening up a gift and there were socks and underwear. And I was like, what is this? You know, my mom was like, you need these things. I'm like, but I don't want these things. But, you know, she, she knew what I needed at that time. Um, when I got married, I remember scanning, doing my... my well, our, our wedding registry thing, and I'm like, oh, big screen TV and this thing and this and this. And instead, people, people get you like utensils and like seven crock pots and, you know, pans and that kind of thing because they realize these are things you need. You, you, you may want the TV. You, you don't need it. What you need are all these other things. Um, when, when we had kids, we now have three uh, beautiful little daughters. So um, uh, when, when, every time we've had kids, people have been so incredibly gracious by, by giving us things and, and gift cards and diaper cream and diapers and all this stuff. And, and none of that's exciting. I'm like, all I want is some sleep. Anybody have any of that? Like, y'all hey, gift me some of that. But, it, but you know, this is just like part of getting old, right? Like, you know, you're getting old when you're more, when, when you're less impressed with somebody's TV and more impressed with like their washer dryer setup, right? <laughs> like that's, that's when you've officially hit the old point. Well, i tell you this because at the time, all these gifts to me seemed like a huge letdown. But in reality, it turned out that these things that were given to me were exactly what I needed at that exact stage of my life. So today, again, we're, we're going to take a little break from our study in Romans. And I want to look at a story here in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus is going to show a group of people that what they need is something totally different from what they want or what they think they need. Jesus is gonna show some people that what they need is something totally different than what they want or what they think they need. So Mark chapter two, while you're finding it, let me give you some background. Um, The gospel writer, Mark, he, he wrote this gospel. If we were to read it cover to cover, he wrote this gospel to show that Jesus came to forgive sins and that he did so with divine authority. And what Mark is going to show us is that when you truly encounter Jesus, there is no possible way you stay the same. Your heart changes, your outlook changes, your desires and your want-tos change. Your understanding of how things are in the world change. With Jesus, everything changes. But while things do change, they don't change the same way for everyone. In fact, I wanna be so bold to say that the way in which you respond to Jesus determines the kind of change you're going to see in your life. That's not an opinion, let's, let's read it here. Let's, let's go ahead and dive in. Let's read Mark chapter two. We're gonna begin in verse one. Verse one, and when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. Just pause here for a moment. Jesus came preaching. One pastor used to say that the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. I love that visual. Jesus is preaching in this house. He's whipping the devil. And there's this crowd that has gathered to hear him. And in Luke's version of this story, if you were to look at Luke 5, it's Luke's recounting of the story. Luke tells us that this crowd that has gathered is made up mostly of Pharisees and teachers of the law. So these guys that have gathered to hear him, these are the religious elite. These are the the Bible college guys, the the seminary guys, the, the theologians. But what we're gonna see is that these guys didn't come to learn from Jesus. They came to nitpick and question him and critique him. So let's see what happens next. Verse three, and they came, they, it's referring to a whole new set of people. And they came bringing to Jesus, a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, the religious crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. (laughs) Whoever said the Bible isn't entertaining just hasn't read the whole thing, right? Like this sounds like some episode out of a sitcom, like the one where they lowered the guy through the roof kind of thing, you know? And it's just a fantastic story because Jesus is is teaching at a home. It's kind of like a small group. It's just a group of people meeting. Like imagine meeting at your small group and all of a sudden in walks Jesus and you're like, Hey man, you want to teach? Things will probably go better that way. And so Jesus begins teaching and your small group starts getting pretty large and and the religious people want to get the front row seat because they want to critique everything he's saying. And then we're introduced to to five new people. One is this paralyzed guy and then four of his friends. And these four friends here are so concerned about their paralyzed friend and they're so desperately wanting to see him help that they physically carry him to Jesus. The text says they brought him to Jesus. They bring him to Jesus because they believe and they have faith that Jesus can heal him and that Jesus can fix him. So they're going to do the hard work and they're going to do whatever it takes to get him to Jesus. Here's the first thing I want you to see today is that these guys, these friends, they don't just invite him. They bring him. Those are two different things. They don't sit around and postulate about the Christian duty and moral goodness of what it would look like to bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. They didn't say, you know what, guys, this sounds good, but we should pray about this. God, should we take our friend to see Jesus? Should we do this? God, is it your will that we should help this guy that's in need? I don't know, God. Just show us your will. Show us what you would have us do. And then they go back to playing Call of Duty. That is not what they do. Listen, I, 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 they, they, they literally go scoop this guy up off his bed and they bring him to Jesus. And here's the reason I love this is because I was the paralytic guy. 11 years ago, some of y'all have heard my testimony. 11 years ago, I was the guy on the mat and there was a girl named Beth. Beth and I had partied together before. We, we used to go out and hang. We had friends of friends, just drinking buddies, Braves games, whatever. We'd go and party. We grew up in Atlanta. And then Beth goes to church one Sunday in summer of 2007. And let me tell you, Beth got saved. I mean like saved, saved. Like walked into church one person, came down to an altar, talked to somebody in the car, prayed the prayer, saved, saved. Walked out of that car, receiving Christ saying, I need to tell everybody what just happened to me. Because everybody needs to know about this Jesus. So... We'd been going, we'd been hanging out and um, again, not dating, but we had been hanging out and she saw that I was going through some, uh, through some stuff in summer of 07, man, I was dropping probably six, $700 a month, just partying and alcohol and going out and sleeping around, doing my own thing, whatever I want to do all the while trying to be in church. I was going to my parents' church, which was this boring little church. Um, my parents won't be offended. I said that, but it, it was this boring little church. And so Beth decides, I'm going to, I'm going to bring this guy to Jesus. He's going to be my one. Y'all been saying, who's your one around here, right? This is what we've been saying. So she makes me her one. She decides I'm going to bring this dude to Jesus. So she starts inviting me to church. And I'm like, well, my parents' church is pretty lame and she's pretty hot. So it's kind of a win-win. All right, let's go to church with her. So I start going to church with her. Then she starts inviting me to this Bible study. So literally Wednesday night, small group. I I don't know how to study the Bible. I don't know how to read the Bible for myself. So I'm not a Christian at this point still. I would pull in. I would purposely show up late. I'd wait about five minutes, then I would text her and say, ah, I got here late, I don't want to interrupt, and then I would leave. So instead of just inviting me back, she was determined to bring me to Jesus. So she said, next time, she said, all right, I see this as a pattern. Guess what? I'm going to be in your driveway next week at 7.15. I'm picking you up, and I'm bringing you to Bible study. She bought books for me. I remember one time my doorbell ringing. She had never been to my house. I walk upstairs. My dad is standing there with books in his hand. I'm like, who's at the door? He's like... Some girl just dropped off some books and said to give them to you and that she would text you what to do with them. I'm like, all right. So I look at my phone, she's like, dropped off some books, read them. Let's go through chapter, chapters one and two next week. She is literally bringing me to Jesus. The best part is, I end up getting saved. A year later, we got married. So some of y'all need to bring some people to Jesus, get them saved, get your spouse. Amen, amen, all right? The question is, who are you trying to bring to Jesus? Who are you willing to go buy a stretcher for, to round up three other friends with, to march on over to their house, pick them up off their bed, bring them to Jesus? Who are you being intentional with? Who's your one, as we've put it? Have you even invited them to church? Have you invited them over for dinner? Have you bought them a book? Have you bought them a Bible? Have you said, hey, here's something, here's a gift because I love you. Let's read these things together. And some of you say, well, I invited them, but, but they never come. Go pick them up. <laughs> I'm an, I, let me tell you, I was a non-Christian for a long time. Non-Christians have a list of mile long of reasons they ain't gonna make it to church, even if they say they are, right? So Sunday morning comes along, you text them, you say, meet you at church, right? And they say, oh, Sunday, I knew there was something going on on Sundays. I forgot church was this morning. You say, no problem, honk, honk, I am in your driveway. Come get in my car, I will bring you to Jesus. They say, well, the church is that church. that Summit church. It's just so big. It's confusing. And I don't know where to go. You say, that's fine. I'll come get you. What's your Starbucks order? I'll have that ready. I'll have you a muffin. I'll put a smile on my face. I'll take you out to eat after. The whole thing, it'll be fantastic because I love you Oh, Also, here's a Bible. Let's study this thing together. Let's go. Let's do this. Bring people to Jesus. And I know some of y'all right now, you, you hear all that and you're worried that your, your friend is gonna think that you're like some kind of religious nut, right? that you're crazy awkward, you know what? They probably will. But spoiler alert, they already think you're weird. (laughs) They do. You think you're like playing it cool when you're trying to like slip in Jesus stuff. They already think you're a Jesus freak. So embrace the awkward, invite them, bring them along. Now, let me tell you, you, if you so choose to engage in this mission that Jesus has put us on, I can almost all but guarantee you are going to run into some obstacles. So let's look at what happened to these four guys. Look at verse four. And when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. This is total side note, but it was so hard not to title this sermon, The Ceiling is the Roof. Like it really, was. any Carolina fans in here? All right, yeah, big win. Okay, that was like the loudest y'all are gonna get this whole sermon. Y'all need Jesus, all right? That's what's happening. Anyways, they get to the house, and so it seems it's the religious crowd that is keeping them from getting to Jesus. Does this sound familiar to anybody who's been hurt by the church? Man, these religious crowds become a common theme throughout the book of Mark. And Mark, the author, he, he doesn't cast them in a very positive light. Cause see crowds represent the people that find Jesus fascinating, but would never actually put their faith in him. And let me tell you, as a pastor at a church this large, this is incredibly sobering news to me because crowds don't always equal disciples. And let me tell you though, the, the longer you're in church, even if, if you, you're trying to follow Christ, the longer you're in church, the easier it is to become comfortably part of the crowd. You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't think I act like this. I don't keep people from coming to Jesus. Well, well, think about some of the ways. Like maybe you, you came in this morning and you're totally inwardly focused. You love the church, you love Jesus, but man, you're here to be entertained. So you're gonna leave today and you're gonna be like, oh, I just, Pastor JD wasn't there. I didn't feel spiritually fed this morning. You know, like <laughs> you've now come to church to try to get something out of church, rather than to engage in the mission that God has put us on. Some of us get so busy tweeting sermon quotes, thinking, oh, if only so-and-so could hear this sermon because they need to hear this, while the Holy Spirit is actually trying to do work on you. You're putting hashtag amen when you should be internally saying, ouch, God's calling me to change something. Some of you, this one's gonna hurt a little bit, even I've done this one. Some of you are so busy trying to get to my seat, that you didn't even bother noticing the person out in the lobby who was standing by themselves, who's hurting, who came to church just to find an ounce of hope because somebody told them, here's where you find it. Sometimes we are in church while there are people in need and we literally and metaphorically have our backs turned to them. And even though our hearts wouldn't say it, basically our actions are saying, hey, we don't really care about you. You can just go to hell. I'm just the messenger. Y'all don't be mad at me. This is what's happening here in this story. This is a very self-seeking, self-serving, self-indulgent crowd who doesn't move when a quadriplegic shows up to Jesus the healer. Which is in such stark contrast to these four friends who are willing to do anything to get their buddy to Jesus. Just, just think about the scene for a moment. They probably tried everything to get this crowd to move. Four guys, man on a bed. They're probably trying to plow their way through, knocking real hard, saying, hey, Jesus, we need to get to him. And the religious crowd's just closing in tighter, not letting him go. And I have to imagine, I, I don't know, that they tried a few things before they just jumped up on the roof, right? Like one of them's like, hey, pull the fire alarm. Everybody will bail. We'll just catch Jesus on the way out. They probably had the immature friend. He's like the youth pastor. He's like, dude, I got a stink bomb. We'll just launch that sucker in there. <laughs> Or maybe like the intellectual guy who's like, we can create a diversion. We can be like, hey, y'all see this? There's free falafels next door. <laughs> or no, sorry, religious cloud. He's like, free counterculture coffee next door. And everybody's like, deuces. <laughs> like, I don't know what happened. Anyways, none of these things work. They end up going on the ceiling. They, they, they start digging. They, they make a hole. And I don't know how high this thing is. They probably look down and there's Jesus. And they're like, what are we, I, I don't know. One, two, <laughs> But either way, this dude lands right at Jesus' feet. Mind you, the whole time, Jesus is just preaching away, right? Like y'all think a crying baby is distracting in service? Imagine like Mission Impossible rappelling from the roof right now while I'm trying to preach. But these four friends are so focused on getting their friend to Jesus that they don't care. They believe that Jesus is worth this kind of distraction worth this kind of craziness, this drama, this work, this investment, this sweat, this struggle, this inconvenience. And regardless of what kind of obstacle stood in their way, they were determined that their faith was going to find a way. See, some of you right now are trying so hard to get to Jesus, but there are obstacles in your way. Not trying in the sense of you're trying to earn your way to Jesus, but you are legitimately trying to get to Jesus. This is where, this is where I stood for about a six-month period right before I got saved, or I, I wanted Jesus. I knew I needed Jesus, but I was so scared to take that, that step. And I'll tell you, it was the most miserable six months of my life because I had one foot in the church and I had one foot in my old life. And my obstacle became this old life of, of friends who would say, "Man, I." I think that's awesome you're doing that Jesus thing, but that don't mean you can't come out and get drunk with us. That don't mean you can't sleep around. That don't mean you can't do all these things. They, they, they were becoming the, the obstacle that was keeping me from Jesus. And finally, when I took the leap of faith, when I started climbing up on the roof, when I finally started digging a hole with the girl that brought me to Christ, I came in and I plopped myself in front of Jesus and had faith to believe that he was gonna fix everything that I needed fixing in my life. So some of you need to exhibit that type of faith. But also know that many of us, us, not just you, us. Sometimes it's hard to be the dude on the roof digging in faith, right? Oftentimes I'm the guy that actually needs to borrow somebody else's faith. I need four friends to to bring me along. Often I'm the guy, I'm the paralytic on the mat who is just looking for some hope. And so I have to surround myself with other believers who can point me to Jesus, who can spur me on in the faith. As we've been learning in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I long to come to you so that we can be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. Do you have these people in your life? If you, if you don't, get in, a, get in a small group. Come talk to somebody after service. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. Find some people whose faith you can borrow every once in a while because we know from scripture that faith always gets Jesus's attention. Let's look at this in verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Man, what this shows me about Jesus is that Jesus is willing to use anybody who is willing to be used. Jesus is willing to use anyone who is willing to be used. I find it fascinating that Jesus is in a room full of the religious elite, these theologians, these scholars, and yet the people whose faith he is most impressed with are the four friends on top of the roof bringing their buddy to Christ. What I hope you hear is that God's ability to use you is not based on your ability, (laughs) God's ability to use you in his mission is not contingent upon your expertise or your amount of knowledge. God has a long history of using broken and imperfect people. And I know you hear this and you're like, well, well, this all sounds great and I wanna do this, but I'm, I'm just not qualified enough. I don't know enough. I'm, I'm not articulate enough. I'm not a people person. I'm, I'm too scared. I'm not bold enough. I'm not smart enough. Well, listen to me, you are in luck because using broken, sinful, imperfect people is God's specialty. I want you to just think about God's track record from cover to cover in here. Who he used. Adam and Eve Lied concealed, accused. Abraham and Sarah, they were old, infertile. Noah was a drunk. Jacob, insecure. Joseph, abused and sold into slavery. Moses was a stutterer and had a confidence problem, not to mention he was a murderer. Elijah was depressed. Esther was an orphan and a sex slave. Gideon was poor and was a coward. Rahab was a prostitute. David had a, has a list too long to even name, but it includes abusing his power for sex. Jonah was a rebellious racist. John the Baptist, homie was just weird. The Samaritan woman had failed relationship after relationship and was ostracized from society. Thomas had doubts. Matthew was a rich Wall Street tax collecting thief. Martha was a worrier. Paul was a Pharisee and a persecutor. Timothy was timid and Lazarus was dead. Add your name to this list. Rejoice that his power is made perfect in your weakness that God can and God wants to use you. That if you are empty today, you are a prime candidate for God to fill you up. 2 Corinthians 5 says you are an ambassador for Christ, a minister of reconciliation, that God wants to make his gospel appeal through you. So yes, uh, sometimes you need to borrow somebody else's faith. Other times you need to share that faith, you need to show that faith, and you need to sit back and watch Jesus work because Jesus is willing to use anybody that is willing to be used by him. I feel like I just preach better when I got a Bible in my hand, you know? Like it just feels good. <laughs> these little notebooks. Do these work for Pastor JD? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Actually the front of my notebook, I have Isaiah fifty-five, eleven. My word goes forth and it accomplishes that which I purpose. Cause that's what I believe this morning. Last service, we saw many people come to Christ. It's in a game. We're not here to be entertained. It's not why we're here. We're here to see lives changed. I hope you have a spirit of expectation this morning that God is gonna continue moving. Let's keep looking. Let's look again at verse five, particularly the second part. Verse five, this is where it gets good. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This is a massive statement. No other religious leader can say this. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Krishna, nobody. They don't say your sins are forgiven. Other religions say, hey, we've uncovered this process by which you can go through these rituals and routines and sufferings and potential reincarnations and pay God back. And maybe someday he will forgive you if you earn it. It's this whole process. Here, Jesus just says, forgiven. I can just forgive, period. Look at verse six. Now, some of the scribes, the religious people, were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse eight. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? I don't know if y'all knew this. Jesus has this cool trick. He knows what you're thinking. (laughs) So so he reads their minds. And what they're thinking is this, this dude is claiming to be God. He is a blasphemer because for Jesus to say that he can forgive sins is Jesus saying, I am God. Because only God can forgive sins. Jesus didn't tell them, hey, I know a guy. He said, I am the guy. <laughs> so when Jesus says, you are forgiven, and they say, blasphemy, you're saying you're God. Jesus is like, I know. That's the big E on the eye chart. I'm trying to communicate to you right now. I'm God, and as God, I have all authority to forgive sins. Jesus, at this moment, on the basis of the authority given to him by God, the father in heaven, instantly forgives the man of all his sins and immediately refers to him as beloved son. No religious process to go through, no rituals, no having to earn it, just grace, pure grace through and through. One second, this man is headed to an eternal hell and five words later spoken by God in the flesh and he is given the privilege of eternal heaven and a title of son. He goes from sinner to son in an instant. He's changed. My wife, Beth, she no longer goes by Beth. She goes by Elizabeth because she said, when I got saved, Beth died. Elizabeth rose up with Christ and is seated with him in the heavenly places. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, behold, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This is why the gospel is such good news. What is before you today, I'm not going to shy back from this. I'm not going to try to conceal it. I'm not going to try to Jesus juke you or slip it in there. What is before you today is the opportunity to place your faith in Jesus Christ and change your eternity forever. Because this Jesus sent by God to preach the gospel with the authority to forgive sins The very one who died to secure our salvation, he is ready to welcome you in as son or as daughter with open arms, regardless of what you've done, regardless of your past, regardless of any sin or shame or regret or situation or predicament you find yourself in, Jesus stands ready to save you. It is finished. There's nothing else for you to do. It's already been done. So Ephesians 2 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God so that no one may boast. Son, daughter, Your sins are forgiven at this very moment right now. If you place your faith in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, not later, not when you get your life together, not when you clean up your act, not when you start coming to church more, not when you promise to read your Bible more, promise to pray more, right now by the blood and on the authority of Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven and saved. That is the good news today. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, ask them this question, verse nine. He says, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up up your bed and walk? Now, obviously on surface level, at least, it's easier just to tell somebody your sins are forgiven because nobody can prove physically whether or not forgiveness really took place, right? And let's not forget about the paralytic here. So he's been forgiven, but if I'm the paralytic, excuse me, if I'm the paralytic, I'm not too thrilled about the initial cure I was just given, right? I come to him, I'm paralyzed, I'm dropped before Jesus, and he says, you're forgiven. I'm like, that's awesome, not what I came for, came to be healed. He has to be thinking, Jesus, I came that if you would just give me movement back in my legs, if you would just heal this disease, if you would just relieve this suffering, then I would be whole, then I'd be happy, then I would be satisfied, life would be easier. Look what happens next in verse 10. Jesus says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw Anything like this. Notice the order in which Jesus did this. He did the forgiving before he did the healing. Because Jesus knew that what this man needed was something much deeper than just a physical need. This was Jesus saying to him, Hey, I I understand your problem. I, I see that you are suffering. And I'm gonna get to that. But please realize that the main problem in a person's life is never his suffering, it's always his sin. And to fix your sin, I have to go much deeper to fix that. We come in all the time and think that we know what our greatest need is, but usually we are only focusing on our circumstances. In reality, the problem you are facing today is not your spouse or your children or your parents. It's not your job or your boss or your coworkers. It's not your lack of resources or shortage of time or insufficient funds. Just like this young man, your greatest need is for the Messiah himself. And the Messiah doesn't just want to deal with our symptoms. He wants to go deeper and deal with the cause. He wants to lay acts to the root of all of our sin. Reading this, it, it, it got me thinking, my oldest daughter, again, she, we found out probably about a year ago or so that she was diagnosed with, um, it's called strabismus. You probably heard that term. Uh, maybe it's basically one of her eyes we started noticing in pictures would just kind of cross in a little bit and it wasn't super recognizable, but if you were around her enough, you'd notice it. So we take her to the eye doctor, they're like, yeah, she's got this strabismus thing. So um, first line of attack is, let's try an eye patch and some glasses. So she would do that like four or five hours a day or whatever, and um, it started to work a little bit, but, but ultimately it, it wasn't getting to, to the root of the problem. And so we take her back and the doctor's like, um, all right, so here's what's gonna happen. It's, it's not actually fixing anything yet. Uh, it's getting strengthened a little, but we're gonna need to, to do surgery. So the, essentially what he's saying is, I, I gotta go deeper to fix this issue, right? Y'all know where I'm going with this. And so um, we we go in and we, we have this surgery and the surgery, it, it's just fascinating to me because it only takes about an hour of actual surgery. It's outpatient, it's incredible. It's a little four-year-old girl laying on the table. She's, she's asleep and they're cutting behind her eyeball. Um, some of y'all hate me right now. They're, they're cutting behind her eyeball and they go in and there's like your eyeball had these like pulley system back there so they like tighten one up and you know, so, th- so they're straight. And man, let me tell you that the first hour after waking up, uh, it was the saddest thing you've ever seen in your life. Her eyes are covered in goop and she doesn't know where she is. And she feels all funny because of the drugs. And she's just crying. And, and, and she, she wakes up and she, she goes, mommy, daddy, I can't see. She, she said that. She goes, can you please take the hurt away? And we're like, what do we do with that? That's like the saddest thing I've ever heard. And so later she finally calmed down um, and was still hurting a little bit. But um, she, she goes, mom, can I have a cake pop? We're like, yes, sure. <laughs> yeah, you, can, you can have a cake pop. <laughs> you yeah, know, that's fine. But the crazy part is you know the, 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 he had to go in and and cut behind her eyeball. He had to go deeper to fix what was actually going on, to fix it for the long term. If 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 he didn't fix it now, it was going to have these lasting effects in her life and on her eyes. And so in order to fix it, he had to go deeper than just an eye patch and some glasses on the outside. Y'all know where this is headed, right? <laughs> Wherever you find yourself today, Jesus wants to take you deeper. And it's not fun and it's gonna hurt. And his scalpel has to go all the way down into your heart and start carving out that heart of stone. And yes, it's not gonna feel good. But when Jesus cuts, he doesn't cut like a thief. He cuts like a surgeon. He cuts to heal. He cuts to take the hurt away. Maybe you're here and you feel paralyzed with guilt or filth or shame or regrets that are all so far deep down inside. You don't even know what to do with those things that they're things thing nobody knows about. Only you and God know about them. You know what? Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. Bring to him your paralysis and let him take out his spiritual knife and perform surgery deep inside of your heart. Don't be afraid of it. It might sting a little bit, but Jesus always heals He forgives. He just does. It's who he is. He's not like the religious people who, when you come to them, they're going to make you feel condemned and not good enough, and they're going to give you a list of things to do to atone for your sins and mistakes. No, he's a God who came to live, who came to die, who rose again and gives forgiveness and to atone for our sins. So every time you doubt your salvation, you remember that Jesus has already declared over you, son, your sins are forgiven. Every time you fall, you remember, daughter, Your sins are forgiven. Every time you mess up, you remember that he has already declared over you, son, your sins are forgiven. You just have to let me go deeper. No amount of eye patching and glasses is going to fix what's wrong in your heart. Lay yourself before Jesus. Let him use the scalpel of grace to heal you and make you whole. I wanna end with this. I wanna look at these last two verses again. Jesus forgives, he heals. Then he tells this man in verse 11, he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This man not only rose out of his bed, but then he picked that thing up. He was carried in on a stretcher and he carried the stretcher back home. <laughs> That's a good day. <laughs> but I, I just have to wonder like, why, why did he take his bed with him? Wouldn't, wouldn't he wanna leave that behind? This thing that would remind him of his, his past this thing that remind him of his, his pain, his paralysis. And then it hit me, no. What used to remind him of those things now is a reminder of Jesus's power in his life. This very thing that used to represent his suffering now represents his salvation. And the encouraging part is that his healing is a reminder of such a beautiful promise to us that one day we will also get the full restoration and healing that we desire. You may not get it in this life, but the promise of the resurrection is that yes, you will be forgiven, but that you will also be made whole again. That if you are in Christ one day, you will no longer suffer from chronic pain. In Christ one day, you will no longer struggle with infertility. One day you will no longer battle loneliness and depression and anxiety and despair. Because you see, God isn't just interested in saving you and whisking you away to some other world. He wants to restore what is broken in your life. A broken reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff Out, If you are suffering today, hear me, Jesus knows that your pain is real. And he also promises that it is not forever. So if you suffer from loneliness, that loneliness is real. It's not forever. You suffer from betrayal, that betrayal, that hurt, that is real. It's not forever because what Jesus said to this paralytic, he's one day gonna say to all of his own, not just son, your sins are forgiven, but son, daughter, stand up, rise up, take up your bed, walk, be whole, be healed. I don't know if y'all think like this, but part of me wonders if he's in heaven right now, still holding that bed as a reminder of Jesus's power. You know, we always say things like, hey, when I get to heaven, I can't wait to meet Jesus. You know how long that line's gonna be? (laughs) Maybe I can get somebody to like hold my place in line. I can go visit some other guys for a minute, right? Like Apostle Paul, and they're like, he's on a wait list. (laughs) He's pretty popular. John, long line. So I can picture myself like rolling up to kind of the heavenly help desk. And there's Peter, he's got his iPad, you know, he's cool. I'm like, Peter, man, I'm waiting in line for Jesus, but while I'm waiting, um, man, I heard this sermon, and and, and uh, I would love to meet uh, the paralytic. Is he here? Do you know where he's at? And I can see Peter grabbing his, his thing, and he's like, hmm, paralytic, paralytic. Man, I, I don't see anybody here by that name. I'm like, really? Because, man, I, I preached this sermon one time, Mark chapter 2, you know, four friends brought this paralyzed guy to Jesus, and he healed him. Peter's like, oh, him. I know who you're talking about. He's here. But up here, that's not his name. Because up here, we don't call people by what they were. Up here, we don't call people by what they did or what they were labeled. So you may know him as paralytic, but up here, he goes by son. Up here, he's not paralytic. He goes by forgiven. He goes by restored. He is no longer paralytic. He is product of Grace, and because of that grace, you no longer have to go back. You either to being called paralytic, because of that grace, you no longer have to be called a screw up or a mistake or unqualified or the one night stand or the freak or the letdown. You no longer have to go back to being called sinner because Jesus stands ready to call you right now, son or daughter. You and I can be lifted up off our beds and walk because Jesus was lifted up on the cross in our place and died. The reason you can take your life up is because Jesus laid his down for you. That's the gospel. (laughs) The gospel which should lead us like this crowd to be amazed and glorify God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus is here. That's it. <laughs> That's all I got. Hank, why don't you worship team, go ahead and come on back up. Listen, I told you we're, we're not here to play church. Unless you were plugging your ears and not listening to a single word I said, you have to resonate with one of the people in this story. Strangely enough, if you were here and you are not a believer, you might resonate with the religious crowd the most, at least what's happening right here, which is the religious crowd had Jesus right in front of their face and failed to recognize who he really was. Don't make that mistake. You can be saved today, right now. Not when you clean your life up, right now. Some of you resonate with the paralyzed man on the mat and you just have something you need, you need prayer for, something maybe you've been praying your heart out for. And it seems like God is uninterested in answering that prayer. Why don't you come and borrow somebody else's faith? Let them pray for you. Let them reignite faith in you. We've been talking about who's your one. Why don't you come pray for your one? You can walk forward and you just say, I don't even know what to pray, just pray for me. So here's what we're gonna do. In a moment, Hank, we're gonna sing, but I'm gonna go ahead right this moment. If you are part of our pastor, if you are a pastor, if you were part of our prayer team, why don't you go ahead and come up. Pastors, prayer team, um, small group leaders. If you're a small group leader, you're willing to pray with somebody, why don't you go ahead and come up. Don't be shy, go ahead and get up. Come up here we're gonna go into a moment. You have a decision to make. Am I gonna give my life to Christ? Am I gonna pray for somebody? What are you gonna do right now? Well, let's turn this place into just a house of prayer. Let's not just show up and sing a couple songs and wait for the guy at the end to say, you are sent. Let's not do that. Let's go after Jesus. Let's go after him, Jesus, who loves the sinner and the sufferer alike. Let's get on our knees and plead on his behalf. So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna worship. You can come, you can pray, you can stand, you can jump, you can shout, you can leave, you can do whatever you want but Jesus is here ready to receive you. So God in heaven, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm grateful that when your word goes forth, it does not return void. I'm grateful that your desire is to seek and save the lost. So God, for the person right now, for the person right now who is hurting, God, I pray that they would come forward and allow us to pray with them. And God, I pray that you would work mightily in their life, that you would heal. God, for things that are broken, would you restore them, redeem them? God, for the the person, I, I, I pray right now that we would leave this place seeing healings. I don't care how uncomfortable that makes people, that we would see healings, that somebody who's had migraines for months would be healed. God, for the person right now, who was so deep in sin last night, who has been uncomfortable this entire time thinking that if everybody around me just knew what I was doing last night, that is a lie from the devil in hell. Nobody is too far gone. Jesus stands ready to receive and save. So God, would you do it? Would you do it based on the power and authority in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? God, we pray all these things. We believe in Jesus' name. Amen.